Very well. Turn please with me to Revelation. And we're doing chapter 15 today. A very remarkable, a very, very beautiful chapter with some pictures in it which are radiant with glory, full of hope, and yet, you know, terrible in judgment. Terrible in judgment. Remember, it's a picture book, won't you? And each picture gives us a lesson, or gives us lessons, whatever it may be. And we draw from the picture the lesson, and the lesson has its application in all times. It's not just limited to something in the future. There are lessons for us in the present, because this is the prophecy, the word of God speaking into the present, just as it was the word of God speaking into the then present. When those early disciples received this letter, it was circulated amongst them at the time, and there was a message for them in it. Now, You've got in this chapter 15, you've got two visions that are being painted. Two pictures are being painted, and they're being painted on the one canvas, like one on this one side and one picture on this end of the canvas and the other one on that end of the canvas. And it's it's against, again, against the background of judgment, impending judgment. Just imagine yourself, and pretending for a moment that John the Apostle is a, a painter, And he puts, he spreads his large canvas out and he sits down to paint and you watch him. And he he reaches forward to his brushes and his colors and he selects colors of, you know, strong colors of uh, blackness and darkness and flashes and red and thunder, lightning. And he just starts to touch the canvas as he begins to paint the background with the billowing clouds and the oncoming storms of absolute ferocity. And he doesn't finish that. He just stops. Now that's in verse 1 of the chapter when we read it, all right? He stops. And he puts his brushes down and he puts his pots back and he selects another lot of colors. Colors that are radiant with joy. Colors that are full of triumph and victory and singing and happiness and song. Bright colors of fullness and He goes over to the one side of the canvas and he starts to paint. And he paints a beautiful picture of the people of God standing in triumph on the sea of glass before the throne of God. And they are singing, singing, singing. You see it over there in contrast to the dark background that he had begun to paint in verse 1. He paints this other beautiful picture in verses 2, 3, and four. Then he stops when he finishes that. And you stand back and you look and think, my, I'd like to be amongst the picture there. I'd like to be one of those people in that picture there that are singing so strongly, who are so safe and secure from all alarm, who are singing in the good of a victory that's been won and a battle that is over. And they are safe and they are secure and they are standing and they are firm. And their eyes are focused and fixed on the God of their redemption and the Lamb who died for them. That's the picture. Beautiful picture. Verses 2, 3, and 4. Then he stops. Doesn't go back to the background. No, he doesn't do that. He goes over then in the remaining of the verses and he starts to paint on the other end of the canvas. And he starts to paint this lovely picture of the temple, you know. You think, this is a lovely building, you know. Wonderful. Ah, but 
There's just something about it. It's starting to really glow with glory, with splendor. And you think, we're going to hear singing coming out of this temple. Wait a minute. No, you're not, he says. And he goes on painting and you, there's the entrance into the temple and there's the entrance right into the very presence of God, into the inner sanctuary. And you think, oh, this is wonderful. The, the sanctuary's open, but hold it, hold it. No, 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 no. It's open, but there's smoke coming out, you see. There's the glory of the presence of God coming out of his holy temple. The Lord is in his temple. Let all the earth keep silent. That's what you've got here. And whilst the picture is radiant with the glory of God, there is something of awe about this picture. You don't rush up to it and start tapping and say, look at this, look at this, look at this. You sort of stand back and you bit and you think, oh, this is tremendous. This is God in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent. And a voice comes out of that temple. And the angels come out of that temple. And they're splendid in their whiteness and in their golden sashes. But they're awful in their presence because they're carrying the bowls of the final judgment of God. There's your two pictures, right? I'll read it. You'll see it's all there. Picture book. You've already got half the lesson, haven't you? See, the two pictures against the background of coming judgment. And fellow believers, judgment's coming. Surely in these days we must be realizing even more and more that the judgment of God is coming upon a sinful world and true and righteous are thy judgments, O Lord God Almighty. God has a right to judge. We'll learn that as we move through. All right, in the light of that, these two grand visions, one a beautiful vision of the people of God, triumphant, and they're singing and they're standing and they're praising God triumphantly. The other, a vision of God in his holy temple, the presence of God, which is both fearful and glorious. The people of God standing on the crystal sea. The power of God and his holiness moving out from his temple in the final days of judgment. There's final judgment and victory and worship brought together in this chapter. Always notice in the book of Revelation there's a continuing theme. Whenever God is going to move in judgment, there's always a picture of the people of God who are safe from that judgment. Why are we safe in the day of judgment? Because Jesus paid it all. The judgment fell on another. That's why they sing the song of Moses and of the Lamb. Because that's why judgment doesn't fall on them. They've been redeemed, but there is a redeemer. There is a power far greater than Satan. And there is a redemption far stronger than sin. That's the story. All right, now we're going to read it. So how we're going to look at the chapter, <clears throat> which we certainly won't get through today, we're going to be looking at the singers, all right? Think about it as you read it. Think about these people singing. Then we're going to look at where they stand. And then we're going to listen to the song they sing in that first picture. All right, the singers, where they stand and listen to what they sing. It's very beautiful what they sing. We'll read it, having that in mind so that you can understand the picture of it beautifully. Here it is, the background. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. 
That's what you put at the bottom of the picture if you're going to give it a name. The name of this painting is Great and Marvellous. Nothing ordinary about this. Nothing small about this. This is to do with the great God of wonders and all his ways are matchless, searchless and divine. You're getting the feeling? You're getting the atmosphere of the picture? Great and marvellous seven angels having the seven last plagues. For in them is filled up the wrath of God. This is the final outpouring. Then he puts down his brushes and changes his colours. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass. You think of that? Untroubled calm. Mingled with fire. And them that had gotten the Victory. I want you to notice that. Look at them. This is who they are. They got on the victory over the beast, over his image, over his mark, and over the number of his name. And they stand on the sea of glass, and they have got the harps of God in their hand. In other words, the instruments of heaven and its music. And they sing. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. This is what they sing. That's the title, as it were, of their great song. A great oratorio, really. And they say, great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou alone art holy, for all nations shall come and worship before thee. For thy judgments are made manifest. Picture complete. And after that I looked, and behold, he's painting on the other side of the canvas, the other end of it. The temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open. That's wonderful. Where God dwells, it's open. Ah, the seven angels came out of the temple having the seven plagues clothed in pure white linen and having their breast girded with the golden girdles. You got the pic can you see it? Can you not see it in your mind's eye? This tremendous building, the tab temple of the tabernacle of the testament, of the dwelling place of God. You see it's opened and you think, Oh, this is wonderful, I can go in. Oh, hold it. No, no. That's not the point here. The point here is what's coming out. You can almost see them in there dignity and heavenly splendor. Seven angels. They've got the seven bowls with the seven last judgments of God, the wrath of God. They themselves 
clothed in that pure white linen with golden girdles, the cover of glory and of God and the purity and holiness of his presence. One of the four beasts. That's one of those other leading, as it were, angelic beings gave unto the seven angels. Seven golden vials or bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. No man was able to enter into the temple. This is so important in the unfolding of the truth of it. No man was able. The door was open, but no man was able to the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. Well, it's a very rich chapter, isn't it? I mean, I, I would sincerely trust before the law that we've already learned something and we haven't said anything, if you get what I mean. Just seen something that maybe you've never seen before of the glory of God. And maybe just sense something of the wonder of the redeemed as they're singing on the crystal sea the, the wonderful songs of the blessed. That's what's happening. And I want to look at those singers. Now, the point I want to really bring home to begin with is the description of them where it says, these are they, in verse 2, who have gotten the victory. These are those who have actually overcome. That's what they have done. And they have not just got a partial victory or done some small act of overcoming. They've got their victory over the beast, over his image, over his mark and over the number of his name. Now, that is broad. That is extensive. Indeed, there's nothing left, as it were, to stand in the way that they have not, as it were, moved through and gained the victory over over completely. You've got the beast, you see, as he's, he's moved. Those forces on earth of satanic, evil, brutal power of cruelty and hatred and destruction who turn themselves in their fury and hate upon the people of God in order to overcome them, in order to destroy them. But these have stood in the face of such a fearful foe and such frightening happenings. And instead of being overwhelmed or overcome, they have overcome that. Because the fear which was meant to conquer them, for Satan works by fear. It's one of his methods. They've stood there and they've said, God's not given us a spirit of cowardice again for fear. And they have cast it aside. And they have said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God under salvation. And in his name they have moved forward. And they have refused to bow the knee to his demands, to yield obedience, not so much as for the scripture says, what is it, a half an hour, says the Apostle Paul. We will not have, a, a own, we will not take the ownership, submit to the control or give allegiance or obedience to all that is working in evil in the world, no matter how fierce are the consequences or how dreadful is the outcome. No. And they say, no, what's more? We, these be the people that have got the victory over the number of his name. They have lived in a real world 
a real world of persecution, of violence, of hatred, of sin, and of Satan. And Satan has come and he has brought up his most fantastic schemes. He's appeared like a, even an angel of light, where it could well be that you would be tempted or duped into following after him or actually believing that he was doing something that was being done was good and belonged to God, whereas in actual fact it was satanic and it was a representation. It was a fake, it was a hoax. It was meant to mislead you, it was meant to deceive you. But these are those where it says, but here is wisdom, here is wisdom. Let those who read understand. The number is 666. It's the number of a man. It's not 777, the number of God. Now, I could go a lot, spend the rest of the morning just talking about that in the sense that Satan is producing duplicate fakes, forgeries for the people of God to follow after. He introduces the ideas into the church which sound good and sound spiritual and in actual fact they're taking them away, the people have got away from the true word of God. Oh, he uses the Bible. Oh, too right he does. He did it in the temptation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's clever beyond all things. He's more powerful than we are. He's cleverer than we are. But just learn wisdom. Live your life in the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. And this is what these people have done. And the consequence is the deceptions and the lies they have not followed after us. But like Caleb of old, we have wholly followed the Lord our God. Now that's this picture that you've got here. What's the consequence? What's the result in this beautiful scene which goes right into eternity? What are they doing? They are now standing. That's the point. They are, they've not fallen, you see. They are standing, living in a godless world, under attack. They have learned what it means to withstand. And then having done all things to stand. They were not pushed over by the forces of evil. They are standing firm on that ground of sovereign grace. Indeed, this is exactly what Paul means in Ephesians when he says, Take unto you, therefore, the whole armour of God that ye may be able to withstand. You see, you're not pushed. There's forces arrayed against the Christian every day, all day in every generation and in every time slot, right until the final end, Satan will be opposing and pushing, whereas we are able to withstand in the evil day. We are in the evil day. We are in the day when the prince of the power of the air is the ruler of this world, and it's Satan himself who would bring everything about to destroy God's people, to destroy the witness of God's people, to silence the preaching of the gospel and to stamp out forever the memory of the man who came to bleed and die, the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. That's satanic activity. But he says you take the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. And that firm standing, because you have been given the grace to withstand, goes right into that time when standing on the crystal sea, standing are the people of God singing the songs of Moses 
and of the Lamb. In triumph they are singing of a God who is stronger than Pharaoh or any subsequent ruler. And they're singing of a Christ who is stronger than Satan or any power that sin may have. That's what it is, the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Now, let me just digress a minute and really come to this point of what it means to stand and to withstand. You see, they've not yielded, they are not ashamed, they're not afraid of him who would destroy the, po- the body. And they are the overcomers. They are those who have overcome. And this is so important because this is our lot today, that we might stand with them in spirit and join them in that matchless scene of singing in eternity. And stand with them in that day upon the sea of glass. You put on the whole armour of God, because it is frankly the only way to withstand. If you don't put all the armour on, you will find the force against you will be able to push against you and cause you to slide and to slip. You strengthen your loins with truth. This is so important. If you want to combat error, know truth. And use it as the thing that girds you together, that gives you strength in a world that lives on lies. You get it? Who tells the truth today? Who? Would you tell me? Who? Would you point me to one outlet in the media that I can now believe? That is actually giving you facts for the pure reason that they want you to know truth and not fiddled facts. To make you come to a conclusion which is nothing more than deception. Deception always has some truth in it, but it always comes to a wrong conclusion and points you in the wrong direction. Now that's the point, you see. Truth shores you up in a world that lives on lies, in a world that believes the lie. Christian lives on truth. And the truth, your word is truth, says the Lord Jesus. And here it is in 66 book, the truth of God. Saturate yourself in the scriptures. It's remarkable that in a time of temptation or deception, the word of God just comes to you out of nowhere, you might think. But you see, you've got it in your soul and in your memory so that the Holy Spirit can use it at the time to really bring and be a wonderful blessing, enable you to withstand in that evil day. And not only that, you, you've got another thing that helps you, the, that armor part, the breastplate of righteousness. You know, you have a standing before God that's perfect. You are loved by him as much as he loves the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can go into his presence as freely as that. Not because of your own righteousness or because you're anything, but because he has given you that righteousness of the Lord Jesus. And now you can go straight into the presence of God in his name. You can go in clothed in his worth. You can come Boldly, I like that word. I mean, not flippantly or irreverently, but boldly to the throne of grace. And you can find grace to help in time of need. What's that all about? Enabling you to withstand in the evil day. The Lord Jesus, as a king and a priest who will there to succor and to help, is on a throne and he dispenses grace to help, grace and mercy in the time of the need. That's beautiful. So there you are, with that second thing on, and you're able to stand confidently before the enemy. Because confidently you can, with that righteousness on, go in the name of Christ 
to your father for the grace to help, for the comfort, for the support. At the same time, you can turn, you can face the enemy and say to him, I'm coming, not in my strength. No, no, I'm coming to you. Like little David, the, the boy that was just a David with a, you know, a stripling of a youth with a little stone and a sling and a massive giant. He says, I'm coming to you in the name of the Lord. And you stand. You see, you can stand. You can withstand in the evil day. And this is how they're standing here. They're standing in the good of the lamb that died for them. What is it? Firm on the ground of sovereign grace. They stand before Jehovah's throne. And the only song in that place is thou art worthy and thou alone. And it's in that worth that we can stand before God and stand before men. And in the strength of that name, we could withstand in the evil day. And what's more than that? Your feet are firm on the ground. We want to keep our feet on the ground, you know? Stop getting away with fairy stories and all sorts of strange things. Get your feet on the ground. Get your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. You remember the Roman sandals? They had those great <coughs> spikes in the bottom. What was the idea? Well, you see, it gripped the ground. And in that wrestle, that, that hand-to-hand combat, because we're wrestling against flesh and blood, they didn't get pushed. I mean, the other fellow might be a lot stronger than you, and he can push you by his sheer weight, and you find your feet skidding. Not when your feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. What does that mean? Well, it means you mean we run everywhere and preach the gospel. No, it doesn't. That's not in its context at all. What it means is that you don't stumble because you, in your faith in any way at all, because you've grasped firmly and understood the peace of God which salvation brings and which the gospel gives. You're firm in your understanding of your own faith so that when Satan comes with forces of evil, you recognize him and you know the word of God. When he tempts you to despair, you know that that can't be. When he tempts you to disbelieve, you know that that never can be. When it tells you of your faults and of your sins, you know they're true, but you thank God that they're gone. And when he accuses you because he loves to do it, nothing happens because you've got your feet well grounded on the truths of your salvation in Christ and you stand there and they say to the devil on Christ the solid rock I stand all other ground is sinking sand you get that point don't you these are they who have got the victory these are they who have overcome and you know you get your mind sometimes and oh dear your mind plays a lot of tricks a lot of tricks evil comes in through your mind it's like the window to the soul and you find that you can think the wrong way, but you've got this protection that enables you to withstand even the onslaughts of your own mind, your own fears, your own doubts, your own crazy thoughts at times in the burden of life and the situation you find yourself. You've got on your head a helmet, and it's the hope of salvation. And what you find is this, you are not soon shaken in your mind. Now look, just this week, both Barbara and I had completely different circumstances, talking to completely different people who are Christians. And the thing that really distressed both of us, I think, and took us a little bit by surprise, was the incredible fear that's taking hold of Christian people. You know, they don't seem to think, well, where's the world going? I mean, what's it matter? (laughs) It's in God's hand. That's the whole point of what Nick was saying this morning. It's in God's hand. That's where it's going. All right. We don't know about tomorrow. I mean, you start to fear. I mean, what about our families? What about our (laughs) children? Yeah, 
What's happening in your mind? It's, it's unsettled and there's fear coming in. You don't realize that. Fear and faith don't go together, you know. They don't. All right? That's why you take up what? A shield around you. And it's a shield of faith. Faith isn't just me striving to believe God hard enough so that I don't get frightened anymore. Faith is a gift of God. Faith is the God-given, the Spirit-enabled power within me to actually embrace and to receive every blessing that God has for me. And I take that shield, and when the fiery darts come, and they're meant to hurt, and they're meant to reach, and they're meant to burn, you just turn with faith and face it, the foe. And it's your faith, it says, that gives us the victory over the world. Faith makes me live my life so that I am absolutely God-centered. You see that? Faith is always looking to God, always, always. A man who lives by faith just keeps looking up there and he keeps listening and he keeps reading and he keeps following. That's faith. That's the shield of faith. He's a man of God. He's living by faith and he's got this mind that's been protected and the fear of what's going on in the world is in God's hands, you know, Stop worrying about the state of COVID and the nations and the rise of China and the obvious rise of one day of Russia and what's, there's some terrible things ahead with the carry-ons of the demise of all morality in Western society. God is not going to honor a nation that's deliberately turning away from him. He will not, he would not be true to his own name if he did. And he won't. True and righteous are all his judgments. That we can do nothing about because that's in the hands of an almighty God who works all things after the counsel of his own will. You say, well, I don't understand that too well, but cheer up. If you ask these people that are singing on the crystal sea, they say, we can see very clearly up here. It's a crystal sea, you see. It's not just any old glass with smoke in it. Huh? Not ripples in old glass like we got in some of our windows at home. They're all sort of distorted. No, no, it's crystal. There's the proper translation. Clear as crystal up there. So you rest in that. Meanwhile, in your hands, you've got the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. I cannot emphasize enough, get to know this book. I cannot feel grieved more than I do, I don't think, about the fact that so often in the church, that's not central. It is not central. You don't even need to go to the church with a Bible anymore. You really don't need to, because you're only going to hear probably one verse or a bit of something and, and a little sermon, you see. You get, it's, get what I mean, it's quite sad. This is the center of all things. This is the word of God. This is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And there you are, at the same time, in your, one thing in your hand, you've got the word of God, and on the other, you're living on a bent knee, praying at all seasons, praying at all seasons. See, that's all about faith. That's all about the resources that are in God. You live by his word, and you live in faith, And you live a life in prayer, constant prayer and dependency upon God. No, you don't sit down and write out a really classy prayer so that the words are really squished, you know, and then you read it. Well, whatever that means. Not going to say too much negative about that. At least somebody's praying. No, you don't just have selected times of prayer. Of course you do. They're good. But you live that way. You know, your heart's lifting up to the Lord Many a time. I have 
It's taken me years to learn this, but many, many times in the day I say, Lord, help me. Just like that, Lord, help me. Lord, help. As a matter of fact, I've got to be careful because I'm be saying it out loud lately and I'm walking around the surgery going, Lord, help me. Don't know what the patient thinks. <laughs> I, I nearly got caught in the corridor the other day. I thought, whoops. <laughs> but it's right. You see, you're looking. You're living in the presence of God. Quorum Deo, as Luther said. You're living in the sense of the presence of God all the time. So you see, this is the attitude. And this is the clothing. This is the armor. This is the posture. This is the way by which we can overcome. This is the way by which, through which we are able to gain a victory. To just, one, withstand in the evil day, and then to still be standing and holding the ground on account of the coming of the Lord. So you've got this sort of uh, dichotomy, haven't you? So it is a dichotomy. You're uh, resisting on the one hand, and yet you're resting on the other. The peace of God which passes all understanding is keeping your heart. But you say, the storm's bursting around me. You know, things are in hopeless despair in my affairs, in my family, or... And the stresses of bringing up a family and bringing up children in this evil day, of earning your living honestly and living amongst mankind that are so bitter and so strongly opposed so often, or just facing the mayhem of the world and the criticism around. No, no, no. Despite all that, you've got to resist and overcome. You're resisting, but you're resting. And you know... You are confident. That's it. We're more than conquerors. You're confident, but you're dependent. Don't you? Don't, don't. You know, in days gone by, I, I've watched it and heard it, where you sort of get together on a Sunday and you think, whoa, we can do anything. I can do anything through Christ who strengthens me. Ha, ha, ha. This is great, you know. And then you sing some silly tune about dancing on the devil's head. You can dance on his head as much as you like. He's watching you. He's just waiting for you to stop. That's all. <laughs> you see what I mean? So you're confident, but you're dependent. That's why the section in Ephesians ends with what? Praying at all seasons. There's a bent knee. There's an de- attitude of complete dependency upon God who is our refuge and our strength. Our refuge in the time of trouble. And he's our shield and he is our tower. And this is how we stand and withstand. This is overcoming. This is one of the great lessons of the book of Revelation. I want you to get to that, and I won't get all the way, but I want to bring you to this. Because for the last few weeks, we did lessons in the book of Revelation, general lessons that we'd learned as we got this far. Well, here's here's the next one. It's overcoming. It's one of the great themes of the book. You're left with with the fact that this is one of the major teachings of the book of Revelation. I mean, you just if you just started in chapter 1, and you saw this vision of the Lord Jesus Christ, what does it say? I am the first and the last. Alpha, Omega, beginning, end, the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. I am alive forevermore. I've got the keys of death and of hell. This is the Christ who has overcome him that had the power of death. That is the devil. This is the one who has gone into battle against sin and against Satan, who has gone into the domain of the strong man and plundered his goods 
and the resurrection was a mighty victory and the ascension was a glorious victory he's ascended up on high he's led captivity captive and so you open the book of revelation you read of him in chapter one to start with whoa this is all about someone who is an overcomer he's overcome he's overcome so you think i'm going to read some more about this and you go to chapter two three what do you find in chapter two or three the messages to the church all the churches you remember what's the commonality that runs through every message to every church every single message there's something the same about it there's lots of different things in there but there's one thing that's the same the message for an overcomer right the message for an overcomer to him that overcomes to him that overcomes to him that overcomes so we're given the vision of the exalted triumphant christ who has overcome and then we come down back to earth as it were and here we are in the church and here our role in the church is what to overcome in the church oh you said i thought it only belonged in the world well the scripture is teaching us that the call to the overcoming is within the church as well as within the world you see it's a different environment but there clearly are still things to be withstood and to be understood there's still the line of deception and the working of satan even within the sphere of the church i didn't make that up the lord jesus taught that that would be and would have us wise in order that we may be understanding it and not be deceived you see when i'm speaking of the church i'm speaking of that which claims to be christian calls itself christian whatever you might like to call it in that realm in that sphere there is good and there is bad and the lord jesus taught this in matthew 13 i didn't make this up he warned before he went he said wheat will grow but tears will spring up you get it false plants will grow with the wheat and satan will sow the seeds of those false plants they will look very much like the real ones they'll look so much like the real ones that you won't be a don't pull them up because you'll get it all muddled trying to separate into part and the sphere of professing christianity is full of true and it's full of false it has grown into something which is massive indeed if you read history it ruled the world for centuries the church ruled the king and the parliament the church was the last say and it grew into something it was never meant to be like a little grain of mustard seed it grew into a massive tree mustard seeds don't grow into big trees all right it's an abnormal outcome and then the birds of the air roost in its branches in other words there's room in this great big fantastic powerful tree for anything to find a place clean and unclean and if that's not enough to convince you the idea all right that the kingdom of heaven the lord jesus says is like a woman who took leaven and hid it in three measures of meal until the whole thing became leavened now it's well that's it that's it's lovely you know this is this is the idea of getting the gospel and putting it into the three measures of meal and then the the gospel goes right through the whole thing and spreads itself right out over the whole world there's a problem with that common interpretation you know the problem is leaven is always evil in scripture you can't find a one single place in scripture where leaven is anything good not one indeed it was forbidden from the sacrifices wasn't it no 
unleavened, unleavened, unleavened. Because leaven is evil. And what the Lord is warning is that what's going to happen, he said, with me gone and until I come back in the, the sphere of professing Christian, the professing church, what says it belongs to me, you're going to find that gradually and silently there's, there's going to be the introduction of evil and it'll spread through and it'll pollute and it'll corrupt. Now that's exactly where we're at. And the call is overcome, overcome, resist, stand against, don't be deceived. Now I'm not talking about fighting with everybody else or all the rest of it. No, I don't mean that at all. But have an understanding of the world and the day in which we live. So you say, well, I'm going to go to the church at Ephesus. I mean, that's a good church. You should read their statement of faith. It's spot on, all right? It is. It's really quite spot on. And what's more, they've, they've done a lot of good work. And not only that, they've dealt with a lot of evil people too. So you go there and you go, this is going to be great for me. And you know what happens when you get there? You find there's something wrong here. Something wrong in the atmosphere. As a matter of fact, the Lord says, I didn't tell you this quite clearly, but you'll find out for yourself they're a fallen church because they've lost their love. You see that? They've lost their what? Their love for the Lord. It's just gone off color. It's not like a pristine. And then their love for the people of God, other believers. You see, it's just not what it should be. And then what? Their love for the lost. They've lost the desire to preach the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They've lost compassion for the sinner. They've lost consideration and love for the fellow saint. And their love for the Lord is just not what it ought to be. God keep us from those things. Lest we become a fallen church. You welcome the stranger. And you welcome the sinner. The church is not for you. Or for me. It's for God. For his people. And for the spread of the word of God. And the welcoming of the sinner. And the preaching of the word. This is a fallen church. Lampstands. All that kind of thing. You go to Smyrna instead and you think, well, Smyrna's going to be a better, better deal for me. And you get to Smyrna and they say, well, <laughs> the Lord just told us we've got to be faithful unto death here. Um, you're going to fall into tribulation. And you think, oh, hold it. <laughs> it's not the same problem as we've had at Ephesus. But, man, there's a lot to overcome here because there's a terrible persecution coming on this church. So I'll shift off and I'll, you know, we'll have a look at Pergamos because that's got to be a bit brighter. And you get there and, wow, you, you find you. The church at Pergamos was in a, an area where the Lord described as being where Satan's seat was. I mean, it was a centerpiece of Satan's activities, right there. And he was a church right there. And inside the church, they were already getting muddled up with sacrificing to idols and committing fornication. You see the need to overcome. Can you see now the need to overcome? You say, well, I'm going to go on to Thyatira. That's got to be a better place. And you just come through the front door. And, oh, lo and behold, who's sitting on the front seat? Jezebel. A filthy painted idol. You know what? She runs all the prophetic ministry in the church. That one does. And she's meanwhile teaching them to commit fornication and to sacrifice to idols. And she's the foulest creature. But she's in the church calling herself Christian. You see what I mean? You see, getting the pictures now. So you say, well, let's go on to Sardis because. Why would you go to Sardis? Oh, I've heard all about Sardis. You know, it's a fantastic place. They've got a name that they live. <clears throat> yes, yes. They live on the past, you see. And not in the present, because when you get there, you find out it says in the Bible that it was ready to die. 
doesn't just mean that they lack numbers. It doesn't just mean that. It means it lacks a sense of the presence of God and the power of God and of the blessing of God. They were once used in the past. And I'll go so far as to say that is applicable to virtually every denomination since the Reformation. Don't live on the past. You see, what about the Methodists? Do you remember the past of the Methodists? Do you remember John Wesley? Do you remember the tremendous revival? Have you ever been to Great Britain and seen all the Wesleyan chapels around? Gone through Wales and the villages and every village had one, two, three and four little chapels full of gospel truth. Shut. Gone. It's dead. Do we need to go further? Didn't General Booth, didn't he stand in the streets? Blood and fire he preached. Salvation outside of the gin palaces. Rescuing souls from hell. And well, with all due respect, a lovely charitable organization today but don't think we're any different what are we going to do live in the high the heydays of a charles haddon spurgeon hey eh? the great baptist preacher will say who stood in the streets and brought the people in preached in his church what happened over three thousand would be there they'd be out in the streets they'd be pressing to get in to go there early or maybe you're still fancying that billy graham days are still on you get it we could go on and on. The Wesley, the Whitfields, <coughs> the Anglican, the Presbyterian, all of us. Be careful that we're just not living on the past. Live in the present, in a real world, with a real relationship with God, with a real light that's shining in the darkness and a real gospel that's being preached so that God can use us for the furtherance of his kingdom. And let's overcome anything that says that we're living in the past. So I say, I'll go on to Philadelphia because things are good there. There's everything they said about Philadelphia is good. But there's a problem in Philadelphia because when you get there, you know what? God says, I've set before you an open door. In other words, I'm going to use you for a great work in the gospel. So when you go to Philadelphia, you're going to have to overcome spiritual laziness. And you can't just be a spectator in that church. You have to be prepared to be abounding in the work of the Lord and in the spread of the gospel and not using the church as just a nice place to sit and watch. No. It's a place where you serve. You serve one another. You serve the Lord. And if you say, I can't do much, I tell you what you can do, you can pray. And you can serve his people in prayer. And finally, you say, well, what about this Laodicea church? Is you've got to overcome in Laodicea. Who'd ever go to Laodicea? You know what you'd go to Laodicea? Because one day, you know, at work, you, you met somebody who says, oh, I go to a great church, you know. We're rich, and we've grown rich. God has blessed us and made us wealthy. We have need of nothing in our church. It's just tremendous place. We've got the lot. We're all satisfied, and we're all smug, and we're all pretty full of ourselves and pretty pleased with ourselves, right? Truth is, the Lord says, you need to buy some eye ointment because you can't see properly. You don't know that spiritually you are naked, you are poor, you are wretched, you're miserable and you're blind. And God have mercy on some of our attitudes in the past, whereby we have thought we were in the best church, weren't we? And we were the finest people, aren't we? And everybody is wrong, aren't they? But me, because of my, well, in all fairness, because of my wealth very often, or because of the easy life I've got and I'm living, I'm being blessed by the Lord. And the Lord says, enough of that. He says, I'll tell you something, I'm going to spew that church out of my mouth. That's violent, isn't it? 
He says, you're just lukewarm. What does it mean, lukewarm? You know, lukewarm, you sort of tolerate the heat, you tolerate the cold. You go a nice middle easy sort of path that works, in other words. But I'll tell you something about lukewarm. Haven't we had some winter days? Yeah. You want a drink? Yeah. What do you want? You want a nice hot drink. Hey, nice hot drink. That lifts you up, invigorates you, doesn't it? Summer's coming, isn't it? Boiling hot. You come in from the yard sweating. Oh, you want another drink? What are you looking for? You're looking for something nice and cold that'll refresh you. The one stimulates, the other refreshes. Somebody on a boiling hot day gives you something lukewarm. Think, oh, I don't want it. That's the point, you see. And I'll just finish with this. From chapter 2 and 3, where the call is to us, you go to chapter 5, and you see the throne room of heaven, and you see that there, on the one in the, hands of the, in the hand of the one on the throne, there is a scroll with its seals. And there's a voice going out, who is worthy to take this book? In other words, this is what this means. In other words, who is worthy to unroll the plan of God for time and for eternity? Who can now bring to pass the work of the kingdom of God and to bring in that kingdom? And no man was found worthy, and John says, I wept. And then a voice says, don't weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. He has overcome. That's the word. And you get this glorious picture of the Lord Jesus yet again, the one who sits on the throne, who will yet bring in the entire purposes of God for the glory of God, for the blessing of the people of God, for the redemption of the whole of creation, for the triumph of the cross. He'll bring it all in. And when he sits on the throne, he'll say, it's done. You get it? It's done. He says, is that all? No, it's not all. Revelation 21, what does it say? He that overcomes shall inherit these things. I shall be to him as father, and he shall be to me as a son. In that blessed and glorious day, when we'll stand before God, accepted in the worth of Jesus Christ, standing on the untroubled sea of the fulfillment of all of God's plans, where evil will never reach again, where Satan will never be seen again, where fear will never be known again. We'll sing on that beautiful shore the glorious songs of the blessed, and our spirits will sorrow no more, neither sigh for the blessing of rest. Amen. May God bless us this morning. Our God and Father, for every thought we've had this day that has lifted our spirits outside of ourselves, beyond our present circumstances, and fixed our eyes upon a throne that is filled, upon a God who is over for all, blessed forever. Lord, we give our thanks and we are moved to worship yet again the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, only wise God. To him be glory and power everlasting forever and ever. Amen.